0: Well, keep your Bible open, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26, because we're going to spend some time looking together at these words. We're taking a pause in our sermon series through the book of Proverbs. We'll come back to that after Easter. But from now until Easter, we're doing a sermon series that we're simply calling Man of Sorrows. And in this series, I have a very simple prayer for myself. For you all, for our church family as a whole, for those of you who are joining us via video week by week, my simple prayer is this. I'm praying that we would see Jesus more clearly. As we listen to what the Spirit of God is saying through the Word of God here in the book of Matthew, We'll look kind of scene by scene through the book of Matthew as Jesus makes his journey to the cross. I pray that as we come week by week with our doubts and our questions, as we come week by week with our griefs and our sorrows, as we come week by week with our guilt and our shame. As we come week by week with our hungering and thirsting for righteousness. As we come week by week with all of our needs. I have this one simple prayer for us. I pray that we will see Jesus more clearly. Today's text in Matthew chapter 26 comes to us, we might say, kind of in five episodes. Five scenes or something like that. And I want to take a few minutes and just kind of look episode by episode. We're going to kind of watch in slow motion like a Netflix miniseries or a Disney Plus miniseries or something like that. We're going to watch episode by episode as this profound story unfolds. The first episode sets the stage for us in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Where were they coming from? If we're reading through the book of Matthew, beginning at Matthew chapter one and making our way all the way toward the end in chapter 28, as you can tell by just a brief glance around, a lot has happened already in the life of Jesus. Before Jesus was even born, the angel says that his name will be Jesus, quote, because he will save his people from their sins. Then the heavens open and a dove descends on Jesus and a voice from above declares, this is my son. and With him, I am well pleased. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount gives powerful, ethical instruction about the way of the kingdom and the way of life under King Jesus. And then the parables explain the kingdom with word pictures for us. People are healed. The lost draw near. The identity of Jesus as the Son of God is revealed more and more clearly. But his disciples still do not fully understand. Most specifically, they especially don't seem to understand why Jesus is talking so much about his own death. And then comes the Passover feast in Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 26, we know it as the Last Supper. The night when Jesus was betrayed, there's the broken bread and the wine. Jesus says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then Jesus warns the disciples that a test is coming. Peter boldly proclaims, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Lord. And then Matthew chapter 26, verse 35, the very last words before our passage today, says, And all the disciples said the same. This question is sitting in the air as we begin reading about Jesus's journey to Gethsemane. This question, will the disciples be faithful to Jesus? Or is that even what matters most? If we understand the message that Jesus is declaring. Now Jesus leads the disciples away from the upper room where they've celebrated the Passover feast with the bread and the wine. He leads them outside of the city walls down into a valley across the brook Kidron where King David had crossed on a day of sorrow many generations earlier. Up the other side of the hill into the Mount of Olives to a place that was familiar to the disciples, a place which is called a garden. Garden of Gethsemane. And this brings us to Episode 2 in verses 37 and 38. In Episode 2, we read that Jesus directed some of the disciples to sit down, to wait. And then He calls three of the twelve to come a little further with him it's interesting how human Jesus is throughout this account. If you've ever had your own night of sorrow, you probably know the comfort that comes from having friends with you in your time of sorrow, but you probably also understand what it's like to say 12 friends is more than I'm ready to interact with in my moment of deepest grief and sorrow. And so, without being mean to Bartholomew, Jesus tells some of the disciples, y'all hang out here. Well, Peter and James and John travel a little further into the garden with Him. And then in verse 37, we read that Jesus speaks to Peter and the sons of Zebedee. That's James and John. And as He speaks to them, it says He began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And He says to them in verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful. Not only does He repeat the word that was just used in the description, He adds emphasis to it. My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. This is deeply emotional language that our Lord Jesus is using. In fact, He seems to be borrowing it from Psalms 42 and 43. Three times in Psalms 42 and 43, we read this refrain repeated over and over. This refrain which was written for disciples to pray, for disciples to speak to the Lord in their moments of deepest grief. This Psalm which has been so meaningful to some of us in this room. It has this refrain in Psalm 42 verse 5. In Psalm 42 11, repeated again in Psalm 43 5. Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? The English translation doesn't give it to us quite as clearly, but in the Greek language, Jesus is using the exact same words that disciples have been praying in their moments of deepest grief across the generations. You see, Jesus Christ is demonstrating. His absolute solidarity with His people, even in our sorrows, griefs, and pains. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, did not just appear to become human. He did not just put on a human costume and play the part of a human. He entered fully into the depths of our human experience grief pain sorrow all of it all the way to the point of saying my soul is very sorrowful even to death i wonder how many of us have felt very sorrowful and something happens sometimes in our moments of sorrow that we can kind of begin to imagine God sitting up there in the heavens distant and untouched by our suffering distant and untouched by the griefs and the pains that exist here in this world. And we might find ourselves thinking, why would I trust a God who doesn't even know what this is really like? About a hundred years ago, there was a fellow who had witnessed the horrific evils and atrocities of the Second World War. So many lives lost. Such a disillusioning experience for so many people. And he came out on the other side of it and he said, in a world of suffering, I could never believe in a God who was immune to it. You see what he's saying, right? Right? If we live through so much grief, so much sorrow, so much pain, so much suffering, how could we trust a God? How could we entrust ourselves to a God? How could we believe in a God who just sits at a distance and shrugs at what we're going through? But when the minister John Stott said, in a world of suffering I could never believe in a God who was immune to it, he was pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. And pointing out that in the sorrows of our Lord Jesus, we do not meet a God who is distant and disconnected and unfamiliar with our sufferings. When we look in the face of Jesus Christ, we cannot truly say, Lord, You don't understand. When we look in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, We meet one who in total solidarity with us knows full well what it's like to be very sorrowful all the way to the point of death. John Stott, who I was quoting a moment ago, wisely points out in a world of suffering, I could never believe in a God who was immune to it. He wisely points out there is still a question mark against human suffering. In other words, there are questions we may not thoroughly or fully or comprehensively or exhaustively answer about why I'm suffering or why we're suffering in this way at this time. But over that question mark that still exists against suffering, John Stott says, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross that symbolizes The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became one of us. All the way to the point of sorrow. See, I think when we think of the passion of Jesus Christ and His death on our behalf, I think most of us are familiar with this profound and beautiful and glorious idea that we're going to be celebrating over the next month, and I hope every month, but this profound and beautiful idea that Christ died for our sins. Sometimes I wonder if we too quickly glance over this fact. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus standing in solidarity alongside every disciple who has cried tears, sitting in solidarity alongside every disciple who has felt very sorrowful. We see Jesus kneeling in solidarity alongside every disciple who in their pain and grief and suffering has ever felt too weak to even stand. Before we move on from episode 2, there's something more we need to notice in verse 38. Having expressed His sorrow and His trouble, He says, remain here and watch with me. And then in verse 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face. Now, that could be an expression to say he very kind of calmly kneeled down and very calmly bowed down. But given the context and given the way that the book of Luke describes the agony that Jesus was feeling to the point of sweating as it were drops of blood... I think it more likely that he literally collapsed on his face. Face down, not only as a posture of chosen devotion, but face down in utter and absolute weakness. Going a little farther, verse 39, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is this cup that Jesus is praying about? Why is he sorrowful to this degree? Is it merely that he's afraid of dying on the cross, the physical pain that goes with that? Surely that was frightening. And thousands of victims died on that bloody instrument of execution called a cross. And no doubt, most, if not all, of those victims who died on that bloody instrument of execution called a cross feared and feared deeply before being hung on it. But I'd suppose that's not the only reason Jesus is afraid and sorrowful. Is it merely that He's afraid of death? Thanatos. Is it merely that he fears having to feel his heart stop beating within him? Surely that's where he's headed and he seems to understand that full well. But I think there's something more going on here. As Jesus cries out, Father, if it be possible... His prayer is not merely, if it be possible, could I be executed in some other way? His fear is not, Father, if it be possible, can I pass out before my heart stops beating? What has brought him to his knees? What's got him crying tears of grief into the dirt an inch away from his face? Father, if it be possible, let this cup be removed from me. What is this cup? If you've ever heard a sermon or an explanation of the Garden of Gethsemane before, I would imagine that you've heard that the cup, this idea, this picture of the cup in The Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament that Jesus read, it very often represents God's wrath. God's opposition to all that is in opposition to his love. Very often it represents God's judgment, if you will. But there's something perhaps even more startling about it than that. See, very often we think about what Jesus is pondering in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. And we think of it only in individual terms. And we kind of go through a catalog in our brain and we think of all of the sins I've committed in my life, all of the wrongs I've committed against other individuals around me. All of the wrong motives I've harbored in my heart. All of the bitterness and anger toward God. All of the rebellion against God in my life. And we think, that's what Jesus was staring into. The opposition of God against all that I have done against God. But here's the thing. That is a tiny, minuscule drop in the buckets in comparison with what Jesus is pondering. You see, what Jesus is pondering is not the cup of God's wrath or opposition or judgment on one individual. What Jesus is pondering is the cup of God's wrath against the wickedness and evil of all the nations. So, Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 17. Jeremiah says, I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all nations drink it. All the nations. Jeremiah's reflection is not that this cup of God's opposition to sin, God's opposition to evil, is only what He has done personally. It is the Lord's opposition to evil that has been done in every nation. Jeremiah unpacks that. That includes the evil that's been done in Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. It includes the evil that was perpetuated by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his servants and his officials and all his people. It includes the judgment on, of God on all the evil that was committed by the king of Babylon. And there's ten whole verses. I skipped there in those dot, dot, dots. Naming nation after nation after nation after nation. When Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane stumbles to his knees and falls flat on his face and cries out, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup be removed from me. This cup is not merely the judgment on one individual's sin or wrongs or evils. This is the right, righteous, holy, just opposition of God against all the evil that's been perpetuated in every nation on this planet across the centuries. This brings us to episode 3, verses 41 and 42. Excuse me, we'll go back to verse 40 there. And He came to His disciples and He found them sleeping. Remember, He had asked them to stay awake with Him. Now in verse 40, Jesus finds them sleeping and He says to Peter, So, could you not watch with Me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into testing. Temptation spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sometimes when we read these lines here in the middle of the Gethsemane experience, we might feel as if Jesus is being a little bit harsh on Peter. You know? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Jesus is not being harsh. He's not cranky. He's not snapping. He's patiently instructing to the bitter end. Remember, it was just a couple of hours earlier when Peter had boldly declared, even if I must die, I will not deny you. I'll be faithful. You can trust me, Jesus. And now Jesus comes back and he's driving home a point. I told you earlier that my blood was the seal of the covenant, not your faithfulness, my faithfulness. And you insisted that you could be faithful. Were you able to stay faithful for one hour, Peter? This is not Jesus severing ties with Peter and saying, I'm sick and tired of you. You couldn't even stay awake for one hour. And we need to hear this in our own frailty, in our own fallenness, in our own fickleness. We need a deeper doctrine of the fickleness of our own souls, right? We are fickle. We make commitments and we break them so easily. Even our strongest commitments to the Lord, we're not always able to follow through with. But here Jesus, as he reminds Peter, were you faithful for even one hour? Some of us need to hear the message that Jesus is getting across. It's not a swat on the hand with a ruler. It's a sweet reminder. Peter, it's not going to be your faithfulness that gets this thing done. It's going to be mine. And by way of contrast, Matthew chapter 26 shows us the faithfulness on which the entire story hinges. Verses 40 and 41, the disciples demonstrated they were not able to remain faithful for even one hour, but in verse 42, again, for a second time. Do you hear the relentlessness of Jesus in His steadfast love for His disciples? Again, For a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. A pattern is beginning to develop here in this story, right? A pattern that is going to alternate between two things. On the one hand... There is this repetition of the disciples' struggle to stay awake. The disciples' struggle to obey. The disciples' struggle to remain faithful. And on the other hand, we see this beautiful portrait of Jesus enduring on their behalf all the way to the end. Our boldest declarations of faithfulness to Jesus will only get us so far. But in these verses, after we see that disciples falter, we see that Jesus endures. In fact, the faltering of disciples is a theme that goes back much further than we might realize. We live in a world in which so many leaders have faltered and failed, sometimes in horrible ways. And you can think back in your own life story and think of leaders who have disappointed you by their lack of faithfulness. You can think through your own life story and think of moments when you have faltered and failed, when the Spirit was perhaps willing, but you proved it to be true that the flesh is weak. This pattern goes back further than you may realize all the way back to another garden. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, a garden in which the man of God was challenged to obedience, but he fell. A passage in which the man of God did not persevere in obedience. And sin spread to all men. And death to all mankind as a result. Here in the garden we see, just as our hopes cannot hang on the faithfulness of Adam, or of Noah, or of David, or of Solomon, or of Ezra, or of Nehemiah, or of James, or of John, or of Peter just as our hopes cannot hang on the faithfulness of any pastor or any celebrity preacher you've ever enjoyed listening to in your life, this passage gives us a sweet assurance. There is one. Precisely one. But there is one in whom we may rightly place our trust. Romans 5, 15 puts the contrast between Adam in his garden and Jesus in the garden like this. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By way of contrast against the backdrop of human failure from Adam to Peter and echoed in our lives as well against the dark backdrop of human failure, the steadfast faithfulness of Jesus Christ shines all the brighter as the hope of the world. The hope of the world. You see, even though the disciples falter, Jesus remains faithful to the end. It brings us to episode 4 here. And this pattern kind of continues in verses 43 and 44. This pattern that we've seen alternating between the disciples' sleepiness and the Savior's faithfulness. Verse 43, And again He came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. (laughs) Just a moment of understanding, right? Verse 44, So, Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. Matthew is repeating this and Matthew is counting for us in case we couldn't get to three. He's counting for us to show us the relentless faithfulness of our Savior for us. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He endured and He endured and He endured in prayer all the way to the end. For the third time He prayed, saying the same words again. Let's pause for a moment and consider these words that He's saying again and again and again. Verse 42, My Father, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. As Jesus lies face down in the dirt, as he kneels again and again and again, persisting in prayer, enduring by prayer for us and for our salvation, we have an opportunity to listen in on one of the most profound moments in all of human history. Here at the fulcrum of human history, as Jesus is moving toward His execution and His burial and His resurrection, Jesus has these last few moments of freedom before his arrest. And he spends them nearby a few of his closest friends. But he spends these last moments of freedom before his death in communion with his Father. In communion with his Father, praying honestly and openly, if there's any other... Praying also with an obedient humility. If there's any other way, but not my will, yours be done. And as he prays, I'm saying it quietly. I have reason to believe he wasn't just whispering these things into the dirt. He was agonizing in prayer. In fact, listen to how the book of Hebrews describes what I think is happening here in this moment. I say I think because the book of Hebrews could be referring to other moments. It just seems to fit here as well as anywhere else. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 say, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, listen to this, with loud cries and tears. This isn't like, kids, fold your hands and bow your heads. This is agonized prayer. Crying out in desperation. Father, if there is any other way, not as I will, Your will be done. This is an agonized cry. In the days of His flesh, He cried out, He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Listen to this line now that Hebrews shares. This is going to mess with your theology. I'm just warning you. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says, Although he was his son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We have a hard time with that because our idea of righteousness and obedience is that righteousness and obedience is simply the lack of sin. Jesus lacked sin his entire life. He never had sins he had to stop doing. Do You see? He never had original sin that he needed to grow up out of. Jesus never had sin, and yet there was a righteousness, a fullness of obedience that he had to grow into. He had a fullness of righteousness that he had to accomplish, not just the absence of sin, but the presence of a fulfilled righteousness. Hebrews chapter five tells us that Jesus got to that fulfilled righteousness Not getting rid of sins. He had no sins to get rid of. But fulfilling all that he was called to do in the Father's will. How did he get there? By agonizing in prayer. And at one level, one of the things this should do to us is just leave us marveling at Jesus Christ and all that he has fulfilled and accomplished on our behalf. It should leave us marveling at the fullness of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Not just saying, thank you for dying for my sins. Praise God that He died for our sins, but there's so much more that He fulfilled and accomplished for us. This should leave us marveling at what Christ has fulfilled for us and for our salvation. But, I want to say in kind of a soft way to the side, this also models for us a path that we're called to follow ourselves. Why did Jesus invite three disciples to come? Maybe simply in His humanity, He wanted to be around a few others. It's understandable, but His business was with the Lord. He doesn't want to sit and talk through the events with them. He wants to have a conversation with His Father. Why does He invite them along? Maybe because He wants them to listen in. And hear and learn by listening to Him. What the way of Christ sounds like. What the way of righteousness sounds like. Not... Fold your hands and bow your your heads. Jesus, thank you for this food. Amen. Following the way of Christ very often sounds like loud cries. Tears. Saying, Father, if there's any other way, please, with all honesty, and yet landing right here, in a place of obedience, humility. Not my will. Yours be done. And how do I know that that's the way of following Christ that He wants us to follow? Because that's exactly what Jesus taught us. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but what Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, your will be done, is verbatim from what He taught His disciples to pray back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. So when you pray, pray like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Jesus is modeling for his disciples an example of what obedience looks like. What humility looks like in the way of following Him. It's not just fold your hands, bow your heads, and murmur these words. Very often the pathway of obedience looks like loud cries, tears. And saying, Father, if there is any other way, please. Not my will. Your will be done. And as we follow in that pathway with our own Anguished cries with our own tears. Perhaps, like Jesus, we will learn obedience through what we suffer. Brings us to the final episode here in this passage, episode 5 and verse 45 and 46. Then He comes back to His disciples and He says to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's a profound irony here in these words. Something that seems Completely out of place, but beautifully out of place when you see the whole mosaic put together, if you will. What seems out of place is that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. I pointed out a moment ago that here at the fulcrum of human history, when all of the story of redemption hinges on this one weekend... And the events that are about to unfold in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. As the whole story of history across the ages and around the globe hinges on this one moment. Which is a series of profound ironies. Things that just seem out of place. What's ironic about the Son of Man being betrayed into the hands of sinners? In order to understand that, we need to understand what this title, Son of Man, refers to. Sometimes we think of Son of Man referring only to the humanity of Jesus. I think it could have echoes of that at times, but in the, context of, in the context of the Old Testament Scriptures, this title, Son of Man, comes with a lot more meaning than that. Think for a moment about what the prophet Daniel spoke about the Son of Man. Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, I saw in the night visions and behold with clouds with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's that title. Well, what's going on with the son of man? Let's read and find out. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, all nations all languages should serve Him. His dominion is a everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one which shall never be destroyed. What's going on with this Son of Man title? The Son of Man is the one who will one day, according to the Bible, reign over all peoples, all nations, all languages. All allegiance belongs to Him. But here at the fulcrum of history, in a moment of profound irony, instead of arriving to serve this One who will rule all the nations, he allows himself to be handed over into the hands of sinners. But at the fulcrum of all history, at the fulcrum, at the story of redemption, at the tipping point of our story, None of these ironies are without purpose. In fact, reflecting back on these events, the early church had a profound sense that this was exactly the way it was supposed to be. This was exactly the way that the Son of Man would arrive at a place of reigning over all the nations by humbling himself and by becoming obedient to the point of death even this kind of death on a cross Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 explains What's going on like this? Jesus Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself or poured Himself out by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore... You see that connecting word before we move on? Because He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, because He carried our griefs and our sorrows all the way to the end, because He took on Himself a judgment that was not due to Himself, because He took on Himself a judgment that was due to all the nations of the earth, therefore... Here in this passage, as we witness the man of sorrows in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see this beautiful portrait. Even though the disciples falter, Jesus remains faithful to the end. Even though disciples falter, Jesus remains faithful. And because Jesus remained faithful... Because he was faithful to the Father's will, even when that involved drinking the cup of God's opposition to all that is evil in every nation on this planet across history. Because of that, the Son of Man has been given the name that is above every name. And so, as we continue our journey of faith, as we follow this one named Jesus, who has been given the name above every name, let's draw near to him with our griefs and our sorrows, knowing that he is able to sympathize. And knowing that He is able to sympathize, let us draw near to the throne of grace where we will find mercy in our times of need. And through it all, let's remain bowed down like the man of sorrows himself honestly speaking with the Lord, drawing near to our Father in heaven with obedient humility, but drawing near with that anticipation of the day when He will come and make all things new. And we will join with the redeemed from every language and tribe and tongue and nation crying out our praises. When we'll join with all creation, all the heavenly creatures singing along with us, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. As we pay attention to the man of sorrows in the Garden of Gethsemane, I hope, That we'll walk away having seen Him a little more clearly. And I hope we'll walk away with a song in our hearts. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain.